as we begin this morning in chapter 20, uh, we have not really left, and it's apparent that we have not left the issue of the last being first. We've been kind of looking at that over the last few weeks and, and noticing uh, many different examples of that as we move through the text. Now, one of the things that we're going to look at this morning, just be reminded of, is, you know, Matthew, um, when we started, we said there's two critical issues in this book. One is, is that Jesus, the Messiah, has ushered in the dawning of the new age. He has brought in a new day, and this new day has dawned. And one of the things that we're going to see as we think about that is, is that the people of God, not only has the new day dawned, but the people of God have been redefined. It's, it's an amazing thing. that There's a redefinition of the people of God based upon how they respond to Jesus. And so you kind of need to be thinking about that because Jesus' kingdom looks radically different. And the reason that some of these people that you would think that would embrace the kingdom don't is because it does look radically different than what they thought it would be. The spirit of the kingdom's different. The rules of the kingdom are different. The king of the kingdom is different. Everything about that is radically different. The ways of the kingdom are even different. So, when we think about that, as you and I kind of study this this morning, we're going to be thinking about the fact that, and what we've seen over and over, is the kingdom of this present age and the kingdom to come are in opposition to one another. And ultimately, Jesus is going to face that head on, and he will be crucified because there's this collision of these two things going on for us. So, so I just want you to think about that as we move forward in this text. Now, another thing to see is just as Jesus comes, many will think he's coming closer to Jerusalem the center where everything is. There's kind of this stirring that's been going on, but now Jesus is coming to the center of, of, of the J Jewish world. And that, that really, you would think that's where he would set up his kingdom. It was the city of David, the city of the great king. But the king, who you think is going to come and sit on his throne, and you really even think that he'll come and, and set this up, he is going to be crucified there. And so there's going to be a lot of things that are going to kind of unfold. Another thing you're going to see this morning is um, the disciples are going to have to see that living in the kingdom of God is going to look different than what they think. Even the disciples at this point are still struggling. They're wanting this grand position. And Jesus is saying, no, this is absolutely contrary to what you think. And the third thing you kind of see, I think, is the humility not only of Jesus, but also kind of this picture of some who are humbling saying, humbly saying, Lord, give us mercy. So all of that's kind of going on in this text, and we'll look at it together. Again, the first will be last, and that's what we'll see. Look at verse 17 in chapter 20. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, this is the third time that Jesus has said this. Jesus is, is telling them, this is what's going to take place. This is what, what, what my, the end goal is in my life. This is where I'm going. My time has come. We're just a few miles from Jerusalem, and, a, and not long before I'm going to be crucified. And so you need to see this. He's not confused about his mission. 
He's not confused about the suffering that he's going to face. He knows that he will suffer, die, and be raised again. Jesus understood that. Now, I want you to turn with me to Matthew 26. Because sometimes I think we talk a lot about this, but we don't read the sections of Scripture that speak to it. And so I just want you to see, number one, it says the Son of Man will be delivered over. Now you and I need to understand that it's, it's not as if um, Jesus was, was uh, kind of, when He went there, that, it, that they just took hold of Him and that there was nothing behind the scenes guiding Him to that direction. He was delivered over by God to these people. So you notice in Matthew 26, 53 and 54, Jesus says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? But all this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left Him and fled. But what's He saying here? Jesus is saying, look, this is something that I could stop. I have the power, the authority, the ability. I've been showing you that Throughout all of time, every time you've watched me, you know I have the ability to do this. So he was delivered over. Actually, Pilate spoke to him in John 19. Don't go there, just, to, just hear this. Pilate said, you know I have the authority to release you or not? And, and, and the authority to crucify you? And this is what Jesus answered. You have no authority over me at, at, at all unless it has been given to you from above. So again, you just see God has delivered him over. I just want you to see that and understand that. The Scripture tells us that it was part of God's definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. We see that in Acts chapter 2 that this would take place. Now look at chapter 27, verses 1 and 2. Because I'm going to take you, we're, we're looking at the things that are said in 20, but look at 27, 1 and 2. Jesus was condemned to death. Notice what it says. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders and the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Now, what do we see here? The, the Jewish people are going to condemn him to death. They are going to hand him over to Pilate, a Gentile. Right? So both Jew and Gentile were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. We're going to see that play out. Jesus is going to speak about it, and then it's going to happen. It's going to come to fruition. Now, look at 27, 27 through 31. Again, we're just moving through. I want you to see this in the text. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus in the governor's quarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they spit upon him. And they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put, on, put his, clothes, his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Again, all of these things being fulfilled, this thing that has been predetermined by God, that this would take place. Now look at 2735. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among them by casting lots. So again, all the way through, all of this, this is a part of the plan of God to accomplish this this crucifying of the Son. Now, there's something more. Because sometimes when we read this, you think about in history, people that have been martyrs for different causes, people who have lost their life and go through great suffering as they try to lead the way. There's something much greater going on in the crucifixion of Jesus. I just want you to look with me. 2746 there's a point where Jesus cries out 
And he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's going on there? There is something more behind the the physical suffering is the suffering that the Son of God faced in that moment. And it was really God's wrath is being poured out upon the Son in that moment. And we can see this. Some of the things that happen as a result, look at 2750 and 51. It says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Why the curtain? Because... Jesus was, there was something going on there. He's doing something more than just physically dying. Jesus has took on the wrath of God. It's been poured out upon Him. And now man will be able to be reconciled to a holy God. The veil of the temple is ripped in two. And so when Jesus is telling that, you don't just need to read over it and go, oh, that's a great story. But going back and looking, you need to be thinking about that. This is what unfolded and this is what God done had done through His Son. Now, the last little thing I just think you, you would want to see this morning is in Matthew 28, 9 and 10. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and t- took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. Then Jesus said, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see Me. So what happened? He rose again. He rose from the grave. And so I spent that time just to say, look, go back and read that. Go back and think about what Jesus did. What happened with His death? Why did He really die? We're going to look at that even further as we move ahead in the text this morning. When you see it, you hear it all the time, but when you think about it, what does it do to your heart? Is your heart so hardened to hearing the message of Christ that it's not doesn't awaken anything in you? This morning, did... When you think about that, when we later we'll come to the Lord's um, the, the Lord's Supper, that that time where we come to the the table and we say the body that was broken for you, the blood that was spilled for you, does it shake you? Does it rock you and, and overwhelm you with the goodness and grace and mercy of God? That sets up. Going back to Matthew twenty, y'all can go back there. That sets up what's about to take place, because in light of that, you kind of think. What are they thinking here? Why don't they see what's going on? Now, Matthew chapter 20, in verse 20, we move to a time where a mother comes up and makes a request. Now, some of you may have had a mother that was very outspoken, and she would make requests for you. She'd go to school with you, first day of school, and go in, meet your teacher, and tell, tell her this is what, da-da-da-da-da, and they lay everything out, and they're very outspoken. And you kind of think about this woman this morning as we we're going to read about her, you think, why is mama coming up? Aren't these young men, you know, like mom's still hanging out and kind of leading them along here? But we also hear, if you read Mark's section, it says the two boys come. And so they're evidently saying, look, let's build a case. Mom, you go with us. Let's see if we can kind of get this thing through. So notice what you see here in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him something. Now she kneels down. It seems to be a sign of humility. Lord, coming to you. She, she just wants him to grant this small request. You kind of see it. Jesus, now listen, this is probably the, from, from a lot of different texts. We won't look at all those this morning. But probably uh, the sister of Jesus' mother. Okay, And so she's coming up. They're, they're, they're tied together, it seems to be, as a family. And so he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit on the right and on the left in your kingdom. Now, what's she saying? I want them in the place of prominence. 
It's almost a political move. I want to make sure that, that my sons are on the right and your left. I want to make sure that, that, that when you sit on your throne, that they're like your closest companions. I, I want to make sure that that's going to take place. Now, they've already afforded a really high honor. You remember when this young girl had died and, and they sent uh, Jesus called those three in and they came in and, and they were really were there when he raised her from the dead? You also remember the point where he goes to the Mount of Transfiguration, he's on there, and Peter, James, and John are there. You think about in the garden, we're going to look at that in a moment, and, and they are called upon to come and be with Jesus. They already have a place of prominence. And I, I think it's interesting that they would keep asking for that. Now, notice what happens. He says, you do not know what you are asking are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. What are they saying? Y'all catch this because it's important to get it this morning. In that moment, Jesus said, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup? What is, what is that? I mean, often in, in the Old Testament, if you were to kind of spend some time thinking about what that's all about. In Jewish thought, it would be to kind of participate in someone's destiny. To drink the cup would be almost to come in, in very close contact, to have fellowship together. So to drink of that, well, even you see in some churches where they all drink from the same cup, it's this, this union together. We're united together. Our destinies are together. Now, the other thing, though, that you see in the Old Testament about the cup is it's a metaphor for God's wrath. It's a metaphor. You listen to Psalm 75, 8. There are a number of uh, examples. But for in the hand of the Lord, there's a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out, out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. It's his, he's pouring out suffering. He's pouring out judgment. And so in this moment, they're asking, can we drink the cup? They're thinking, we'll be sitting around with Jesus in communion with him, spending time together with him. And Jesus said, you don't understand. This cup is the cup. Of my of God's wrath upon me. Now, I'm not going to take you to Matthew 26, but you can mark this down. In Matthew 26, 36 through 39, in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is what happens. Jesus tells these three disciples, they say, He says to them, You stay here, but I'm going to go ahead just a little ways and watch and pray. Watch and pray. And so Jesus goes and He says, Lord, if You're willing, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He comes back and the disciples are sleeping. And he, he wakes them and says, watch and pray. And he goes again. If this cup could pass from me, Lord. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And a third time he does the same. Because Jesus knew in that moment, what he was about to drink was the wrath of God. God was going to unleash His wrath upon him. And not only that, He was going to experience the wrath of men. They were going to beat Him and, and all torture Him and crucify Him. So as you think about that, I think it's important to understand what's taking place. Now the disciples say, we are able. I don't think they quite grasp that. But He says, you will drink of it. You will drink of that cup. In one sense, spiritually, all of us drink of that cup. We, are, we, we come to Christ and we, are, we, are, we die with Him and are resurrected in Him, but in a very physical, tangible way, they would drink it. 
Later in Acts chapter 12, we see that James was killed uh, for, for his um, commitment to Christ. John, it's, it's, there's a lot of different things said about him. We're not sure exactly when he died, but we understood that he experienced great suffering for the cause of Christ. He says, you will drink it. It's promised that, that the people of God will suffer for, the, for, for the, their identification with Jesus. Now, but notice what he says. But you, I can't give you the right and the left. They're going there thinking, we'll sit on a crown and we'll get to sit at the right and the left. And Jesus says, no, it's a cross. And at the right and the left are thieves. You want that place? You want to be crucified beside, beside me? You will face suffering, but you can't have that place. It's been destined for the criminal. And I'm going to be there in the place of a criminal being enduring both the wrath of men and the wrath of God for your sakes. Jesus' death had this amazing uh, um, picture for us to understand the first and the last, and these guys had to catch that, but much more, and we'll see that as we move ahead. But I want you to think about that. What kind of Christianity do you present to people? Do you say you will drink of the cup? You will endure great suffering for the cause of Christ. Uh, Mike was mentioning to me this morning about the suffering people all over the world who identify with Jesus and suffer. And sometimes we say, well, that's not really in America. That's not something we see or experience. Maybe not physically, but the more serious you get, I promise you, the more you embrace a life lived most of God's glory, the more you proclaim Christ, the more you walk in that way, the more you abandon this present age and embrace the age to come, the more you proclaim that to others, the more you will face difficulty. The Scripture says it is God's will that you would suffer. John 15, Jesus says, you will suffer on account of me. Now, it may not be physical, but I promise you, the closer you get to the Lord and the more you speak about Him, difficulty will come. But yet, in that, the midst of that, like the disciples would see, Jesus will. Jesus will be saving people. Some will embrace that message and love it and cherish it, and you'll get to experience great joy with them. But many will never embrace it at all. I, just, I think it's important for the Western church, and you and I included, to really understand that a Christianity that, that says things like, God has big plans for your life. God, God wants great things to happen in your life, and then you sit there and you hear that over and over, and at some point you start saying, God wants me to be happy. God has bigger plans for me than anybody else. God wants me to have this and that and the other. God wants all these things to happen for me. And it, 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 there comes a point where you say, why is there a need for a cross? Why is there a need for a crucified Savior if all God wants is for you to have fun, to enjoy life, to have every need that you ever want met? It's just important, I think, that we see Jesus said they will experience it. Disciples, you have it wrong. It's not about sitting on a throne. It's about embracing the cross. It's about following me in that way. It's about denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following me. Are you catching that? And so he's building a case and helping them see that, I think, very clearly. Verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the brothers. Now, Jesus is going to teach the disciples some other lessons here, but now here's the thing. Why do you think they're angry? Are they angry because they thought of it first? 
You ever been in a deal like that? Where you were like, man, what? I wish I'd have thought of that. Why didn't I go in and try to make that political move real quick? Why did, what was my mom? You know, why, why wasn't she helping in on this deal? And I think it's important as you think about that and you see, what, what is their thoughts here? Why are they upset? I mean, from what we've seen of them, we might think they're trying to secure a place of honor also. So they kind of, but then at the, at the same time, they might look up and go, well, well, um, well I'd have never done that. But I think it's important to see that in our own hearts. Often we want a Jesus that's going to make my life better and easier in this present world. And I think what Jesus kind of reiterates over and over, you're a humble servant, you will suffer in this life, you wait for the next. And I think it's important to see. Verse 25, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. One of the things that um, is probably in the back of their minds is chapter 19, the 12 thrones. Probably where they heard all that wonderful stuff about where they would be in the coming age. But he's saying, look, there's a stark contrast between the rulers of this world and the rulers of the kingdom. There's something radically different. The rulers of this world want power. They, they want to get to that place because the further you go up, the more people serve you. The higher you get, I mean, you look at that even in your own life, the more you have and the more abilities you have, the greater you are in this present world, the more people you have at your disposal to do what you want and to serve you. That's just the nature of it. There are very few leaders that are saying, how might I bless these people? They don't get into the place of leadership to serve, but to be served, to exercise authority. You ever met someone that they, they received authority and, and they crushed other people because of it? It happens all the time. And he's saying that's not the way of the kingdom. That is not the way of the kingdom. It should not be so among us. First Peter 5 says you exercise authority in, in a gracious way, gently leading the people, shepherding the people, guiding them, trying to protect them. Jesus says, this is the way of the kingdom and those who would lead in my kingdom. This is how they should be. He says, but whoever would be great, he basically says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant and whoever first must be your slave. Sometimes I've gotten around Christian leaders and have been guilty of this myself. And you almost feel like they always... There's this idea of serving them. They enjoy, sometimes you feel like, the place of honor. They're proud and arrogant. And the greatest men of this world, if you took them out of the ministry, they would be the CEO, right? And when they talk about one another, they say how great they are. And they have all these people, they become, it's almost like they're idols for other people to serve and worship. And, and some of those guys don't even want that, but the people even almost bow down to how wonderful they are. And Jesus says, this is not the way. This is not the way that we are to be. This is not the heart that we should have. This is not the life that we should lead. 
If anyone claims the name of Christ and is living for Him, they should be servants. They should embrace a servant's heart. Let me ask you something. Do you think that's characteristic of your life? You think it's characteristic of your existence now that you are truly serving other people, that you're longing, oh God, may I live in light of what Jesus has done and serve the people of God and serve the people of this world. Is that characteristic of your life? Let me ask you something. When you look at your calendar, who are you serving? Who are you spending your time for? Is it you? Your family? Your career? What's it for? Who are you serving? Jesus is saying, you should be a servant that is the characteristic of the people of God. Not all yourself. Not all, how much money can I make so I can have more people serve me? He's calling them to be servants. And notice what happens here. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the preeminent picture of the last will be first. Jesus has all authority. Jesus has all power. Jesus created the world. Everything is sustained by Him. There is nothing that's ever been created or ever will be created that did not come from Him. But He left heaven, came to earth. He became a man, which was a service in and of itself. But not just that, He became the, 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 the most serving man. And not even that, he, he served to the point and was obedient to the Father to the point of death. But not just any death, even death on a cross. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. You ever get around a bunch of silly, arrogant Christians? You ever been around those people? Well, all they talk about is, is things that, that have nothing to do with serving others. They're so interested in talking about godly so-called things, but they it's not with a heart to serve. It's useless things. Because it's almost like they have all the, the, the tongues of angels and know all this stuff, but they don't love people. Jesus says, this is not the way of the kingdom. It's not how much you know. It's, 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 it's with a heart longing to love other people. Jesus came and was the greatest servant. Notice what it says, and to give his life as a ransom for many. What is a ransom? That's an interesting phrase. We may not use that all the time. You may have heard of that at different parts of the world where where someone will be taken and put in bondage and they say you pay the ransom price to get them out. 1 Timothy 2, just listen to some of these verses. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now, what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, what is a ransom? It is a price paid for liberating either a person or thing that has been taken or possessed by another. And the teaching here is that Christ, by his death, looses our bonds and sets us free who were prisoners. And that he does so by paying the price. And the price he paid was his own precious blood. For you, 1 Corinthians 6, have been bought with a price. He paid the price. Jesus gave his life to set us 
free. He, he gave a ransom price, the price of his own blood. It's very closely tied to redemption. It's very closely tied to salvation. It's all within that family. Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He gave us his righteousness. He took our sin and all that, that came with that. He was cursed for us. God sent uh, upon his son all of the wrath, the, I mean, just unbelievable amounts of wrath that we deserve, that his people deserve. He unleashed it on his son. Jesus did so by His own precious blood. You want to understand that He rescued us from our sin, from death, from Satan, from suffering, from all those things. He gave all so that we might live with Him. This is a powerful thing. This is powerful and it helps us see what it means to really understand and know God. Jesus was the mediator between God and man. And He brought us to life through His name. Notice the last little portion of this text. In verse 29 through the end. And they went out to Jericho, and a great crowd followed Him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the, by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. And they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. What do you see here? There are a number of things going on. But one of the things you see is these men who have been blind, who cannot see, who are crying out for someone, really the Son of God. That what, what, it say, what does it say here? As you notice in this text, it, you see they're crying out, Son of David. They're saying, Messiah, Messiah, save us, rescue us from blindness. And they're crying out, have mercy on us. And the crowds are sitting there saying, be quiet. Be quiet. Don't, don't bother Him. Jesus does not have time for people like you. He doesn't have time to those people that are broken. Be quiet. And, and so they're trying to silence them or rebuke him, and they just yell all the more, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. And as they're crying out, Jesus stops. And Jesus looks at them and says, what do you want? Was it to sit on a throne? Was it to be the ruler of the world? Was it to be the first in the kingdom? They're saying, Lord, have mercy. We just, we just want our sight. Just be merciful to us. They're in a beggarly position. They're in persistent faith. They're humbly trusting Him. Have mercy. The crowds are saying, get away from Him. Leave Him alone like the disciples with the little children. Stop bringing those kids up. And Jesus, the one who has compassion and authority feels that for them. He looks at them feeling pity and He touched their eyes. Now what do you see them do? They get up and follow Him. You know, it's an amazing kind of picture that you see going on here. The disciples who haven't really got it and these men who are blind able to see. And they see so much so 
that they're crying out and begging and seeking and knocking, and Jesus answers and He heals them and they follow Him. This morning, as you kind of as we conclude this text together and you think about it, we, we need to know Jesus came to die. He was delivered over by the predetermined plan of God that He would we, He would come. That he would live a perfect life, that He would die a sinner's death so that you and I could be reconciled to a holy God. He came to rescue His bride. He did so through His own blood. His blood was the ransom price for our sin. He was crucified for us. He delivered us from the wrath of God. This is an amazing thing to see. We also see in that story that He's the preeminent servant. That you and I this morning, if we want to understand being a servant, we look to Jesus, we see His service on our behalf because of the, the grace that we've received as we've said, have mercy on us. We get up and follow Him and we walk in that same way. In the present, as we live our lives, it's not about reigning, it's not about ruling, it's not about having the place of authority, it's about being a servant. And the closer we get to Jesus, the more you and I will serve other people the more that we will look at the blind man, at the person out there in your life right now, that every week you pass up and you walk past them knowing they're blind, knowing they can't see, but you're so busy thinking about building your own kingdom or being this great place that you walk past the person who is completely and utterly and without hope. I think for us this morning, you, you, as you leave this text, that you, you go back and say, Lord, let me embrace a heart like you have again. A heart of a servant. A heart of one who will lay down their lives so that others might hear the Gospel. So that the church might grow up and begin to advance the Gospel. Let that be true of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have given us amazing grace that You have displayed that to us this morning. That You've reminded us of Jesus being the ultimate servant, giving His life so that we might be saved. Lord, I pray that doesn't produce pride. I pray that doesn't cause us to focus on the wrong things. I pray that it would be with a heart of gratitude that we would move forward by faith, seeking to advance the Gospel. For, for there are many out there who have never heard. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.